Okay, if you have a Bible with you, would you like to be finding Mark's Gospel? We're in chapter 15 in our series in Mark, which we resumed in October, if you can think back that far, if you're here uh, typically on a Sunday. Um, back at the beginning of October, we, we, we began in Mark 11, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And all these months later, uh, we've, we've moved forward to Mark 15. Those chapters cover only really a few days or a week or so, um, which is amazing when you consider the length of the whole letter. It's just 16 chapters long. We have nine, ten chapters covering years of Jesus' life and ministry, and then all these chapters at the end on, on his last days and what followed on after his death. So we're now arriving in chapter 15 um, with a little trepidation at the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, last week, Mark, uh, Ben took us through the first section in, in chapter 15, as Jesus is before uh, Pilate, and we're going to read this week from, from verse 15 onwards. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling to their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Having resumed in Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, back in October, since then there has been this gathering atmosphere of of gloom. There was that triumphal entry as Jesus came into Jerusalem. There was then a a series, a time when 
Jesus was confronted by lots of opponents asking questions to try and trick him and try and discredit him. And Jesus dealt with those amazingly, um, but it sets the tone of all that was to come. Increased conflict, increased darkness. This is the hour, uh, and as we'll see next time, literally, it's the hour of darkness. The tone is one of near total gloom. And so, from a distance, with with Mark's help writing his gospel account, we've, we've watched as these events have unfolded. And more recently, we've, we've watched as first Judas betrays him, hands him over. We've watched as the soldiers arrest him. We've watched as Peter disowns him three times in the courtyard. I don't know him says one of his closest disciples. We've watched then as the chief priests condemn him in a trial that took place, well, if you can call it that, but a trial that took place um, through the night. And then very early in the morning, we've watched from a distance as Pilate sentenced him. Or was it the crowd? Because Pilate's the one who asks the question, what shall I do with this man? And it's the crowd who say, crucify him, crucify him. Do you want Barabbas? No. They wanted. They didn't want Barabbas crucified. They wanted Jesus crucified. There was a crucifixion plan that day. Anyway, that's why there are. There's one man on either side of Jesus. I think. Well, probably should have been Barabbas. I guess that's a conclusion we could draw. Barabbas was supposed to die that day, with perhaps two of his henchmen. But it was Jesus. Instead, we've, we've watched um, all that from a distance. Then now, just here, um, Pilate hands him over um, to be crucified to, to the soldiers who will carry out the task. So we've seen in all of that the ugliness of human sin and evil. We've seen Judas greed. We've seen chief priests envy and jealousy. We've seen Pilate's cowardice. And maybe in the mix, as we've been uh, going through this part of Mark's gospel, it's uncomfortable reading, not only because of the sin that we're observing in others, but because it kind of holds a mirror up. And we see things in ourselves that we don't feel very comfortable with. We can see in ourselves um, the, the ugliness of sin. And we could say, well, who's responsible for the death of Jesus? Well, yes, of course, it, it was Judas, it was the chief priests, it was Pilate, it was the soldiers. But we're being led through, also, we're recognizing, I would, I would add, actually it was me, I'm responsible, I had a part to play, it was my sin that required his death. I don't know if you know, it's obviously, this film has a 18 certificate, so I don't imagine that everyone would have watched it, but uh, Mel Gibson made uh, a film, The Passion of the Christ, uh, depicting uh, his, his crucifixion and the, uh, the, the suffering he endured uh, before that. Someone was mentioning to me recently, I don't know if this is in core group, that in making the film, Mel Gibson himself uh, makes a couple of cameos. He makes a few appearances. Uh, you wouldn't know it necessarily, 
Um, but at one point, his hands are used. And his hand, he, he, he includes his own hands holding the nail on, on Jesus' wrists. That's all you see of Mel Gibson at that point. You see him holding the nail. It's kind of Mel Gibson's way of saying, I'm responsible. It was my sin um, that required this to, uh, to happen. So it's uncomfortable reading. We'd prefer not really to look. Obviously, we sing about the crucifixion. We rejoice in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But actually, to look at it for any time is, is distressing. It's, it's just cruel ugliness of humanity taking place. And as we've, we read in this passage, not only is Jesus... Uh, executed, the sentence is carried out. He is surrounded by people who are taunting him, making fun of him, and mocking him. So the passage I read uh, begins and ends with people piling cruel insult on top of unimaginable injury. But As the pace of events in Mark's gospel is slowing right down, perhaps that is something that Mark wants us to see. The awfulness of sin, the bad news that required uh, Jesus to die. But Mark is slowing down to really dwell on these moments, these final moments of of Jesus' earthly uh, life, to show us good news. So the, the situation, the atmosphere, the human actions involved are those of utter darkness. But there is, there's light shining through. I don't know how many gardeners are here, but if you're, if you have a, I remember in our, our garden back at home, we had this really rickety, um, wooden shed in the top right hand corner of the garden. And obviously it wasn't hooked up to electricity. There was, no, there was no light in there. There was like a couple of perspex panes for a window, but they didn't really achieve much at all. It's just dark in there. But if you kind of close the door, in the door, there's all sorts of gaps. And, and on a sunny day, if you're inside this gloomy shed, that you would see kind of highlighting all the... In, in all the dust inside, you just see a, the shards of light coming in through the cracks of the fence. And if you, if you even then step into the light, then you'd see, you'd see the colour and the light that's kind of coming into it. And we don't have to wait until the resurrection to see good news in what's happening here. Some shards of light coming in. Humanly speaking, it is a scene of outright evil, but God is at work. And Mark is telling us what happened um, on purpose, right at the outset of his gospel. He introduces it in these terms, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the beginning of the good news. It's going to unfold before your eyes, even though, like so many, we're watching from a distance. We're listening from a distance of, uh, of, of hundreds and hundreds of years. And as we see these shards of light, we see who it is who's on the cross. 
Who? Who is Jesus? And it's revealed to us uh, more as we look at him crucified on the cross. Who is Jesus? Firstly, Jesus is the suffering servant. Notice that Mark doesn't go into detail about Jesus' physical suffering. In verse 15, we're told that Jesus was flogged. And we might just wonder what was involved. Another translation might talk about he was scourged or scourged. It was a a fairly vicious punishment in itself that could could for some prove fatal um, in what happened there. Mark mentions the word and moves on without going into the the detail. And as we've gone through the the passage that I've just read, any number of times we're told that Jesus was crucified and that he was on a cross. Um, We see in verse 20, they led him out to crucify him. In verse 24, they crucified him. In verse 25, it was the third hour when they crucified him. In verse 27, they crucified two robbers with him. Um, And in verse 30, uh, come down from the cross, save yourself. Um, And in verse 32, those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So like time and time again, almost like a shockwave repeated through the passages, Jesus is crucified. Jesus is being crucified. But see here, there's no mention of nails. There's no mention of blood. There's no description at this point of uh, of his pain or his appearance. Uh, it can be helpful uh, in some respects, perhaps in today, to, to know a little bit more about crucifixion and we can, be, we can find out information. What, what was involved? What's the process of death? How much physical suffering was actually involved? But that's, that's not what, in some sense, is being drawn to here. Maybe that's just because the first readers living in Rome, in the Roman Empire, they knew. It didn't need explaining. Um, many would have seen it taking place. Um, other times outside Jerusalem. Jesus and these other two men here crucified that day. It wasn't, they didn't invent this method of crucifixion on that day. It happened many times before. And so perhaps there's just a sense of reserve. They're speaking of something that is so horrific and that some people will have seen that you don't need to talk about it in any great depth. But what does Mark mention in so doing. Look at some of the things that Mark also draws attention to. It's it's inescapable that we see here. Jesus was crucified. What else do we see? What does Mark add in about Jesus' suffering? We see in verse 24, they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. Why do we need to know that? What's that inviting us to consider? Now, at this point, Mark isn't saying, oh, you remember that it says in Psalm 22. But he's drawing our attention to it so that we might go there. So let's turn, let's turn back to see who Jesus is as the suffering servant. We, we're going to turn back into the Old Testament. And one place for us to turn is Psalm 22. 
2. Having just considered that detail in Mark's account, now let's read Psalm 22 and verse 18. It's a psalm of David describing um, David's prayer in the midst of suffering. And he says in Psalm 22 verse 18, They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Well, maybe that was just the obvious thing for the soldiers to do. That's, that was their perk for the grisly task. We get to take the condemned man's clothes and possessions. So what should we do with them? Rather than kind of cut them up, we'll, we'll cast lots to get to see who, who gets it this time. Did they know, of course they didn't, that they were fulfilling scripture written hundreds of years earlier that predicted that it would happen in this way. We could even turn to other verses in the same psalm. Verse 6 and 7 and 8. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Oh my goodness. And where have we just heard that before? Or reading on from verse, uh, from verse 12. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. It's a description of horrific suffering. But even right here, we're starting to see some of these shards of light. Okay, Judas was responsible. Pilate was responsible. The chief priests were responsible. I was responsible. What we're also seeing in the scripture is this is God's plan. This is, this is God's, this is God's doing. If those descriptions could be in a psalm written hundreds of years earlier in God's word, what we're seeing in Mark, it's, it's happening for, for purpose. I think, well, what, what makes Jesus' death unique? We could also turn to, uh, to Isaiah 53, which I know we've, we've, we've turned to before, but it's uh, a chapter that's rich in helping us to understand Jesus as the suffering servant. He said himself, didn't he? The Son of Man came not to, uh, to, to be served, but to serve. And as he is on the cross, this is his ultimate act of serving us all according to the set plan and purpose of God made before our creation in order that we might be forgiven and know him forever. A a plan is working through. So in, in Isaiah 53 and verse 10, Again, it's, it's taken, in that passage, it's taken time to describe the suffering of the suffering servant. 
It says in verse 10, yes, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Who do we see on the cross? We see Jesus, the suffering servant, bearing away our iniquities, taking it upon himself. Jesus is the one who knew no sin, but became sin for us. Why is this so important for us to know? Well, what's the, what's the worst thing you ever did? I've said it can be uncomfortable to read through the end of Mark's gospel, and it holds up a mirror, and maybe we see our own ugliness in it, or the ugliness of our sin. What's the very worst thing? Because that's probably what stays on our mind. There's loads of stuff that's, that's sinful that we've just forgotten about that, that ever happened. But some, obviously some things stick in our minds. What's the good news that's shining through in this passage? When you repented and believed in Jesus, that sin became his. No longer yours. So imagine an old-fashioned filing cabinet, um, pulled right out, longer than the average. And it's dense with pieces of paper crammed into it. Maybe they're categorized, maybe it's chronological, maybe it's something else. You can go in and you can pick out, here's a register of all my sin. And there are ones that are really highlighted that I remember particularly. It's got my name on it. But when I believed in Jesus, what happened? It was taken out of that filing cabinet. My name was was deleted and Jesus wrote his name. It's as if he did that. And so he faces the punishment that I don't. It was on me heavy, but it's come off completely. Now, we don't use old-fashioned filing cabinets, do we? Most of stuff now is on a cloud or um, on our hard drive. And sometimes there's the worry with computers. When you want to delete something, has it really gone? It might still be there. I've pressed delete. But then you can go back and you can find it and recycle it. Is Is that what's... Is that what's happening? Or sometimes you think, this laptop's really old. It doesn't really work anymore. There's loads of stuff on it. So I I don't just want... What do you do? Take the hard drive out. Properly make sure you've bashed it to smithereens. So there's no ongoing record of whatever was on that laptop. Maybe personal information and pin numbers or whatever. It's not going to be helpful. It needs to go. But that can can just be that nag. I know that delete was pressed. But is is it just coming back around? Oh, there it is again. Oh no, that's what I've done, that's what I'm like. The good news is, delete means delete, or transferred to Jesus means it has totally gone. That's why we need to see Jesus as a suffering servant who bears away our sins. So that many might be justified, made clean with God. 
Who else? What else is revealed about Jesus as he is on the cross? We've looked back into the Old Testament. We've been reminded that he's a suffering servant who bears away sin. As we look in Mark's gospel as well, we see that Jesus is the glorious king. Well, there's not much glorious about what's happening. Oh, but in some ways, in many ways, there, there is. Jesus is God's king, the son of God. Not Caesar, he's the king. And when Jesus first uh, began his ministry, he said, look, he preached that the kingdom of God is near. Because he'd come near. And this hour would draw near. He was welcomed into Jerusalem in, in those royal terms of uh, of praise. Back in chapter 11, um, as he's coming into Jerusalem, riding on the back of a, uh, a donkey, uh, in 11 verse 9, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. He's been welcomed as king. You may have noticed in chapter 15 as well. Time and time again. How is Jesus described? Admittedly by people who are questioning and accusing. But how is he described? Time and time again. He's the king. He's the king of the Jews. Let's do a quick survey. Verse 10, uh, verse, verse 2 of chapter 15. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Verse 9. Do you want me to release you, the king of the Jews? He asks later. Verse 12. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? And then in verse 18 in the passage we're looking at today. And they began to call out to him, Hail, king of the Jews! From the lips of the soldiers. In verse 26, the written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And in verse 32, let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Who is Jesus? He is the King and he is glorious. The the irony is, that people who don't believe in Jesus at this point are actually telling the truth. He is the king of the Jews. The charge above his head was accurate. And he's the king of kings. Now remember that he has been teaching his disciples about the kingdom. And he, he predicted his suffering his death and his resurrection uh, many times. One of the most detailed predictions he makes is in chapter 10 and verse 33 and 34. At this point, his disciples are marveling at him because he's, he's boldly leading the way up into Jerusalem knowing what awaits him. So he says in verse He says in verse 33, We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So there Jesus makes another prediction, remarkable prediction, giving what actually happened that we've just read in chapter 15. 
He knew that people would spit on him. He knew that he'd be flogged. He knew what awaited him. This is why he was in Gethsemane praying. If there's another way, Lord, if there's any other way, Father. But he resolved to do the Father's will. What's interesting is when he makes those predictions, the conversations that happen just around them. On that occasion, you get James and John. Sometimes there are, there are arguments about who's the greatest. On this occasion then, uh, uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, in verse 35, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us what, whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Chapter 15. As we're told about the crucifixion of Jesus, what does Mark add in verse 27? They crucified two robbers with him. One on his right and one on his left. If Paul wanted to be, uh, if, if Mark wanted to be really economical with language and just say it very quickly, why did he not just say in between? Jesus was crucified in between two other robbers. Is he not drawing our attention right back to this? Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. No, they didn't. They had no idea what Jesus' glory would look like. Here is the king. Looking utterly defeated and weak. What? What king can protect others after they've died? Let this king of Israel come down the cross. He saved others. He can't save himself. It seems, it seems ridiculous. Because any king has to live if he's going to... He has to preserve himself. He has to look after number one. Even if he does have noble and good intentions for looking after other people and protecting, protecting other people. But here we see a king... defeating ultimate enemies by appearing to give in to them. Here is a king conquering sin, even whilst he appears to be totally overcome by it, by other peoples. Here is a king defeating death, even whilst he is overcome by it. This would prove to be the greatest triumph and perhaps um, one encouragement from considering Jesus as the glorious king is for those facing persecution. Mark, in all likelihood, was writing to Christians in, in Rome. For them, the implications of being Christian uh, may not have been very far off from Jesus' suff- suffering. Under the power of an oppressive regime or just looked down upon Perhaps it felt like the bleakest of times. Maybe like this man Simon of Cyrene, they felt picked upon. He was forced to carry Jesus' cross. Well, we we can understand why Jesus didn't have the physical strength, having been flogged and beaten, to to carry his own cross the few hundred meters up to uh, the place of the skull. They they grabbed someone else, maybe... um, 
this man Simon Cyrene. Maybe they're picking on a man who's got darker skin. Maybe they're, um, this, is, this is something that's beneath them. And they're not, they can't really ask many people to do it. But they pick on, on Simon. And he carries the cross for Jesus. Remarkable. He is the only person in this passage who does something to lessen Jesus' suffering. Actually, they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. That, that could have also lessened his suffering because it, it might have just, it would have resulted in him being, it's like an anesthetic or making him really, really sleepy. He said, no, I'm not going to accept that. I need to be fully aware of what's happening as I go to the cross. So he, he refuses that, but he receives the help of Simon of Cyrene. Encouragement for those facing persecution. I guess we don't face very much of that, but we can look, we can feel looked down upon. We can, we can know something of what it's like to be picked on. Uh, maybe in, even in a, in a class context, uh, in the classroom with, with other classmates. And actually, you know, by being here on a Sunday with mum and dad, or whoever is looking after you, you know, I'm, I'm in the minority. There are lots of people in my class. They believe loads of different things. And I know Jesus gets laughed at. I know they kind of laugh at me for, for what I believe. Or, or... Well, there's, in, there's the encouragement of knowing a, a greater glory than the world has uh, to offer. Follow him. Trust him. He really is the king. He really is God's chosen, glorious king. Thirdly, we also see in this passage that Jesus is our wonderful saviour. All the way through, as I've said, truth is on the lips of the hard-hearted, proclaiming king of the Jews. And here especially, on the lips of the chief priests, who must be rubbing their hands with glee that all their plans and schemes have, uh, have been successful. And so in verse 31, they begin to mock him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. They're mocking him. They're taunting him. Nevertheless, they're also speaking truth without realizing. Jesus chose to save us. Therefore, he chose not to save himself. He couldn't do both. He couldn't preserve himself and rescue us. That's why in the garden he resolved to do the Father's will. And he submitted himself to what looks so abhorrent. So in Mark chapter 10, verse 25, perhaps one of, if not the key verse, one of the key verses in Mark's gospel He talks about what it means to lead. He's talking to his disciples. And in verse uh, 43, he's saying, look, don't be like um, the rulers of the Gentiles. 
He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be uh, first must be slave of all. That's what Jesus has taught to his disciples. That's what he wants leadership to look like in his kingdom. And verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life to save, to pay, to pay a ransom that would result in our, in our freedom, in our forgiveness, in our, in our deliverance. It could only happen if the ransom was paid. The ransom could only be paid if he went to the cross and suffered and died. So uh, we, at this point, we could look at what the, uh, what the apostles went on to teach uh, themselves in 1 Peter and chapter 3, verse 18, summed up beautifully by Peter. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The only way of bringing us to God is that he went through the crucifixion. He gave his life for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. Dying in our place for our sins uh, once for all. That's how Peter puts it. And in Romans chapter 8. And reading from verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? It was the Father's plan. Yes, Judas' greed was involved. Yes, chief priest's envy. Yes, Pilate's cowardice. Yes, all of that ugliness of human sin. But it was the Father's set purpose so that we could continue reading in Romans chapter 8 and conclude what can separate us from the love of God. Um, And what can separate us from the love of Christ. And so maybe for some of us we're facing the most important decision. Actually, what is my response Again, going back to Peter, he spoke on the day of Pentecost when many people were, were cut to the heart. As, as Peter has explained and uh, what's happened to Jesus, what God was doing, they were cut to the heart. Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. How do we save ourselves? Well, Christ has saved us, but our response is to repent and turn away from our sin and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to receive that forgiveness uh, from him. We can respond to Peter saying, save yourselves, because when people taunted Jesus, save yourself, 
He didn't. He chose not to, that we might know the wonderful love of God. In chapter 4, verse 12 of Acts, Peter would also say, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. We can be saved. He's the only one. He is the only way. But he is the way. It's not pressing delete and sin just gets recycled, gets, comes back round to condemn us. Now, if there is sin that's being repeated, we're going to repent of it and confess it and turn away from it. But what he's done for us is utterly effective. And nothing else can do it. No one else has achieved it. He is the suffering servant. He is the glorious king. And he is our wonderful saviour. Let's pray. Oh God, give us, give us eyes to see and, and ears to hear what you have done for us. Lord, we don't, we don't want to just get trapped in theology by slogan. Just a, a quick phrase. Lord, we, we say, God, open the eyes of our hearts as we look at your word. Would you help us to meet with you? Would you help us to respond to you? Would you help those facing the worst thing they've ever done? Uh, their, Their guilt and condemnation? To see that that guilt became yours? And we're justified. Lord God, would you help those who are facing persecution? Would you help those who can feel, I just get picked on because of my faith. People take the mickey out of me. Lord, I pray, Lord, for courage today. I say, Actually, this is how Jesus was treated. We, we love and follow a glorious king who became a servant. He, became, he was humble. He was humiliated, but true glory is his. Lord, we want to follow you. We want to humbly follow you, trusting in you. And Father, I pray, Lord God, for anybody here who's still uh, facing the decision, what, what do I believe? And how do I respond to Jesus and to what he's and to his death on the cross. Father, I pray that if there's some tug of war today in anybody's heart, that you would help them to see, I can can receive the greatest gift by trusting my life to Jesus, turning away from my sin, acknowledging it, but then looking to him. And seeing that it was laid on him. So that I, the guilty one, can go free. Because that guilt has been taken away. Amen. Let's stand and worship God together.